So there is a question that hangs out there among Bible students who, in particular, who study eschatology, last things, um, that revolves around uh, the question of whether or not the things that were spoken of by Daniel, by Jesus in Matthew 24, by John in the book of Revelation, um, and other passages that relate to last things or eschatology, um, the question being, were those things written about and spoken about in those passages and others like them, were they fulfilled in 70 AD um, when Jerusalem was attacked and the temple was destroyed and all of this? Or are they events that we're still looking forward to future? Um, there are particular names and labels for these different perspectives. Um, the idea that they were those who would hold the view that they were fulfilled in 70 AD uh, would fall under what is called the preterist view, the idea being that these have already previously been fulfilled. And so these uh, passages are not speaking of things that are yet to come. They're actually referring to events in history. Uh, the other view would be known as a futurist view. That would be the view that I hold, for example. The idea that uh, these passages don't refer to something that's already happened, uh, but are looking forward beyond even 70 AD and really are, are, are looking forward beyond even where we are today. Um, not everything in Scripture hasn't been fulfilled, but there's a pretty significant number and, and kind of events that have not yet been fulfilled in the view of the futurist, uh, which again is the camp that I would fall into in this regard. Now, a question is raised by Randall, who watches the podcast, and he asks the question about the dating of the book of Revelation. And this is an important point in a conversation that involves preterism, because a preterist who believes that these things were sat, uh, were fulfilled, satisfied, accomplished in 70 AD would, by definition, have to hold to an early dating of the book of Revelation. Now, I think there's a case to be made about the Gospel of John um, being written uh, prior to 70 AD. Uh, we've mentioned this, I believe we mentioned this in a previous post, uh, the mention of these five porticos uh, that are existing that John makes reference to, and he speaks about it like they're presently still there. Well, these would have been destroyed in the, in the destruction of the temple area, and so, uh, and when Jerusalem was sacked, and so um, that may be a sort sort of hint to give us an insight as to maybe John's gospel was written before 70 AD. But the book of Revelation is different. Uh, for a preterist uh, to hold that view, uh, and by the way, I'm not casting aspersions on preterists. I mean, there's, um, uh, as I'll mention in a moment, there's there's, there's good faith study and, and debate about some of these issues. And, and the issue of when the book of Revelation was written um, is not an unimportant one, but you can be a preterist and, and, uh, or a futurist, and it doesn't affect your salvation per se. It just would have a, a clear, obvious bearing on your eschatology. But for a preterist, um, the, the idea of the, gospel or the uh, book of Revelation being written by John prior to 70 AD is an essential. Uh, because, again, if, if the book of Revelation describes the events, not of some future event down the road, but speak of the destruction of the temple uh, and, and the events surrounding it, then clearly John would have had to have written that prior to those events uh, for it to be considered um, prophecy. And so the, the argument is that John wrote this sometime before 70 A.D., now, is that a valid perspective, historically, scripturally, and that kind of thing? Uh, are either of these views, the preterist or the futurist view, like which one has the most support for it? Well, 
um, in regard to the date of the of the writing of the book of Revelation, uh, I would suggest that that only really matters to one perspective. The futurist view, it doesn't make any difference at all because in looking at the, uh, the, the, the book of Revelation to a futurist, it is clear that these things are pointing to events in the very in the last days, not just in the last days of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so it, he could have written in 50 AD, 60 AD, 70 AD, 90 AD. It really doesn't matter because these things are way down the road for the futurist perspective. However, for the preterist, it has to be prior to 70 AD. So is there evidence to support that it was written prior to 70 AD? Well, at this point, I'm going to say that while I've spent a significant amount of time looking at some of the arguments two and four, uh, for and against, I should say, um, there is a very mixed answer to that question. Uh, people who hold either of those perspectives, an early dating or a late dating, people who hold either of those perspectives, both of those perspectives, people from either camp, would try to argue that it's clear that the Bible would seem to promote this, or that the witness of history and the early church fathers, Irenaeus and such in particular, um, would say this. But to be honest with you, uh, the arguments uh, that both would present for are not without some significant challenges. And so um, when it comes to the witness of of the writers in the early centuries, again, you think of people like Polycarp, or you think of people like Irenaeus, uh, disciples of John, the apostle, you know, people that knew him. Uh, there is often the, um, the, um, the pushing of this idea that uh, Irenaeus, for example, in, in referencing John and his intention in the book being a futurist one, that's not without some problems and some challenges. Um, on the other hand, um, the early witnesses do seem to sort of indicate the idea of a, of a future uh, fulfilling of these things. And of course, you know, Polycarp, Irenaeus, for example, were after 70 AD. They're in the early, uh, you know, uh, late first into the second century. Um, so, you know, they're clearly living in a time past 70 AD, and they're still talking about it like it speaks of a future event. Um, but again, some of their testimony is not without some there have been challenges raised to their to their testimony on this and some of the other church fathers that quote Irenaeus are sometimes then accused of not really doing the thinking about it for themselves as much as they're just sort of standing with Irenaeus and his perspective and so it's, it's fascinating reading and, and I would encourage you and I'm going to encourage you to spend some time uh, anybody who's interested in these things to spend some time and, and try to understand these different perspectives now at the end of the day, I don't think either perspective is without problems in terms of the, the dating of the writing of the book of Revelation. Uh, what I am completely comfortable reiterating, though, is that the dating of it really doesn't matter to me as a futurist. Well, why are you a futurist? I'll tell you why I'm a futurist. I hold to the future view of these things because it seems to me that regardless of the witness of the early church fathers, Regardless of, of, of the changing uh, perspective of the body of Christ on these things, I didn't mention that before, but um, there is debate about you know the periods of time in church history where these two perspectives were variously held as the predominant perspective, uh, which again is another thing that just sort of 
probably adds more confusion than help in that regard. Um, but but it's it's shifted back and forth now uh, throughout church history. Um, I guess I should mention too. I, I'll lend one more thing to this. Within the Preterist view, there are a couple of uh, very important elements that, that we should bring out, too. Um, and I'm always trying to make sure I'm fair about this, too. Again, I'm not casting aspersions on this perspective or those who hold it. But I, I, as a futurist, I am just pointing out a few areas that I think are significant in this discussion. Uh, one of them is that within the field of Preterism, within the view, there are actually two views in Preterism. What is called full Preterism, or what I like to basically think of as consistent preterism, full preterism would take the entire book of Revelation, uh, at least past chapter 3, as it begins to speak of future events. It would take all of the um, um, book of Revelation as being allegorical, not to be taken literally, but allegorically. Partial preterism, or as I would tend to think of it as kind of inconsistent preterism, would take all those same uh, chapters in the book of Revelation and would believe them also to be allegorical or symbolic until chapter 19 verse 11 when there is now a shifting in that perspective and there is the belief in the literal return of Christ and a new heavens and a new earth. Um, so there, there's a full and partial preterist perspective on that. Now this lends itself to me explaining more fully why I hold the view that I do as a futurist. Within the preterist movement, and it's not just true of preterism, it's also true of amillennialism and various other isms um, that, that exist, where there is sort of a built-in perspective, a built-in approach to hermeneutic, and hermeneutic just simply means the uh, the philosophy of, of that we bring to how we interpret scripture. Um, a preterist, an amillennialist also, um, and either version of preterism, would hold uh, a style of hermeneutic that believes that apocalyptic literature and scripture, in other words, those passages of scripture or books in scripture, which speak to future events or last things in particular, uh, kind of have a built-in perspective where there is the assumption that most, if not all, of these passages need to be taken as being symbolic or allegorical or metaphorical, which are three different things. They sound similar, and they are, in some respects, share some similarities, but they are distinct things. Um, but those are assumed to be the proper mode through which we are to see writings as relate to last things. Now, as a futurist, I would take a very different perspective in terms of my hermeneutic. I would believe that we should always, and by the way, this is nothing new. I've said this many, many times about my perspective on this. And I'm not, I'm not the only one by any definition that takes this perspective. Most premillennial, and especially premillennial pre-tribulationists, certainly, I maybe shouldn't say especially, but certainly would take uh, this perspective. And that is that we would view the Word of God and read it and allow it to say simply what it says at face value, and that would be the interpretation that we would take before ever applying the idea of it being allegorical or metaphorical um, or symbolic. We would always approach a text first as though it were simply saying what was intended to be said. 
Now, there's a reason why um, I would take that view, just like there are uh, reasons why I would take that view, just like there are reasons why somebody would take uh, the other view, the more uh, approaching it symbolically, allegorically kind of view. Um, so let me talk just for a minute about that. Uh, and then I'm going to come back to the preterist, uh, um, futurist views. Um, for a, for the preterist view, or for a, a view that tends towards symbolic or allegorical language, uh, or reading uh, through that lens when it comes to, um, you know, uh, eschatology, uh, passages relating to eschatology, um, one reason is because, by way of example, um, because there are symbols in the book of Revelation, it is sometimes therefore viewed that the book of Revelation should be therefore entirely or virtually all, almost entirely seen as allegorical. Because these things speak to future events and symbolism is used, the tendency would be towards seeing the, the book as being allegorical or symbolic. Now add to that another very important influence. Um, back in the day, Augustine uh, back in the early 300 to 400 B, uh, AD, uh, Augustine, who is one of the most well-known and, and this is important, uh, one of the most, if not the most, prolific writers um, of the ancient world, um, held the view that the scripture in total has a number of different levels at which it can be and ought to be understood. For the most basic fundamental level, you would study the scripture and just read it at face value and take those that information that is given right there at face value on the surface. And so, therefore, if you read the Bible and you just take what it says and you understand it that way, good, but that's just sort of the first level. Ultimately, you want to get to what would be seen as kind of the third level, and that would be that you want to understand the spiritual meaning behind the plain text. Um, if you've ever read uh, Augustine's City of God, uh, or many of his theological treatises, there's there's elements of this philosophy in it. City of God is very heavy in this. And so the idea being that when we interpret the scripture, we are looking for the far deeper meaning that the scripture is intended to convey uh, beyond just what the text itself says on the surface. Now, and without trying to, you know, shine on Augustine, I mean, the, the man was brilliant and, again, prolific, um, and who the heck am I? But I, I would hope that at this point that hearing that approach to a hermeneutic should raise a red flag, or a number of red flags, but one in, uh, for sure if in fact the text says one thing but I'm looking for a deeper meaning in the text and that deeper meaning is different than what the text is saying on the surface isn't that a problem another related flag would be well if the text says one thing but I'm determining some deeper meaning from the text how do I know my deeper meaning that I'm gleaning from the text is not just subjective how do I know that's really what the author, both the author who wrote it, but also the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate author, really meant? I mean, how would I know that for sure? 
in language, when the author writes something, we know what they mean, basically. I mean, taking into consideration cultural norms and differences and idioms and those kinds of things when we study the word. It was written, it wasn't written to 20th century, 21st century Americans. It was written to first century uh, Jews and Gentiles, right? And so um, in, in Asia Minor and, and Mesopotamia and that kind of area. And so we always want to be thoughtful about that. But by and large, taking into consideration those things, we can surmise and understand even with a great degree of certainty what the authors intended to say because we understand what words mean. However, when you say that you're going to move beyond that to a far deeper meaning that isn't necessarily the intention that the text that the author wrote is about, well, now by definition, you're sort of moving into a more subjective interpretation of things. Now, subjective by literally definition is not objective. In other words, it's not that something means something regardless of what I think about it. Now, what I think about it starts to weigh in on what the text may actually mean. Um, it's, it's sort of the foundations of what in modern times has been called the postmodern way of thinking. It's not so much what the author said uh, and intended to say as much as what I glean from it and what I think it says. Or, or the meaning I take from it. Um, it's it's not it's not the way that we should that we should interpret scripture. And to bring it back around, when we sort of assume that a particular genre of literature inside the scripture should automatically be seen or should be taken, I should say, with that methodology of interpretation, a couple of problems have happened. Number one, we have, for some reason, decided that this this uh, this information in the scripture is to be seen differently than the rest of the information in scripture, and read differently, and understood differently, and and and, and approached with a different hermeneutic, trans uh, uh, interpreted differently. Um, and also, we've now forced ourselves into a position of subjectively interpreting that literature. Now, I, as a futurist, and, as, and, and even more specifically, I, as somebody who believes that we take the text at face value, I think that approach should, therefore, cause me to understand more consistently, uh, uh, if not correctly, certainly consistently, but I would argue correctly as well, what the, what the, the passage is intended to convey. In other words, I'm letting the text tell me what is meant to be taken from the text, and I'm not bringing a, an, an outside a, a apparatus to it. I'm not assuming something about the style of the text that affects the way I interpret it. I believe that the Word of God can be approached the same way throughout. Now, what that doesn't mean is that I think that there isn't symbolism in Scripture, or that there's not metaphor, or that there's not allegory. I do think that there are all of those things. Um, uh, you know, there's there's mention of how God uses similitudes and things like this and conveying the messages that He wants to convey. We don't sacrifice that um, uh, by saying that we don't believe that a particular genre of literature in the Scripture needs to always be interpreted that way. We don't say that, and we believe that God can still use metaphor and all these kinds of things, even though. Um, those things may not constitute the basis of an entire book or an entire uh, 
passage in Scripture. I think the better way is to instead read the passage for what it says and interpret it based on that. And where symbolism is employed, then, and where it's clearly employed, not assumed to be employed, uh, for example, like the book of Revelation, the assumption is that because there is some symbolism, that therefore the book needs to sort of be consistently interpreted as though it were symbolic. I would disagree with that and say, no, the symbolism in the book of Revelation is given intentionally, but I would argue that in at least many of those very critical, important places, the scriptures themselves have interpreted that symbolism so that we don't have to wonder what is intended by it. Uh, the one who takes it as allegory is left not completely sure that this is what the passage means, but is, is left having to say that it likely means this, or we think it means this. And somebody with a very different subjective interpretation can say the same thing, and you're left wondering, well, okay, well, are either of these right, or how do I know? Well, I think a straightforward interpretation of the text is always the better way to go. And then we just recognize symbolism uh, when it comes up. Now, that being said, this is important. Those are all, that's an important discussion to have in the framework of this larger discussion of, um, of preterism and futurism. So the preterist view, just to come back to that initial discussion, the preterist view brings with it a few perspectives uh, in regard to the book of Revelation uh, and uh, uh, end times prophecy um, that are significant and important. Uh, one of those is the idea of uh, the identity of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. The preterist view is that Revelation chapter 17 and the mention of Babylon, mother of harlots, you know, the source of wickedness and all of these things, is supposed to be seen as being a veiled reference to Jerusalem. Now, it may be that when you've read Revelation, that you may have wondered, is Babylon mentioned there and in chapter 18? Is Babylon there intended to be seen as literal Babylon? Figurative Babylon? Is it, again, a veiled reference to another city? Um, and, and when it's seen as a veiled reference to a city, um, sometimes it's seen as Rome, because uh, the idea of sitting on seven hills is mentioned. It's a very popular understanding of that, and I think that, in part, it, it likely is in view. Um, but is it, in fact, a reference to Jerusalem? I would say categorically no. I don't think I don't think there's any reason to think it's uh, Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem referred to that way uh, elsewhere? I think Peter makes reference, and it may very well be that he has Jerusalem in mind when he says that. Um, uh, as I recall, I think in the Minor Prophets there is reference to Babylon sort of being associated as a an aspersion cast on Jerusalem by the Lord. Um, but in Revelation 17, is John speaking of Jerusalem? when he refers to Babylon? I would say no. And there's a couple of reasons why. And the reasons that I bring to this discussion are based on my taking the text at face value and comparing it to what else scripture has to say on the subject. Now Babylon, just by way of explanation for this, Babylon appears for, uh, uh, the, the origins of Babylon appear in Genesis chapter 10 and also Genesis chapter uh, uh, 11. And the idea of Babel, which is mentioned there, as being uh, really the product of Nimrod, who is called a mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, he establishes the city of Babel. He establishes the city of Nineveh and all of this. And Babel then becomes the location 
of the Tower of Babel, and this area becomes the location later of Babylon, uh, which speaks of the idea of confusion and that kind of thing. Now, Babel, or Babylon, as it becomes known, becomes synonymous with the idea of of false religion and also world conquest, as, as Babylon is one of the uh, major world powers that has has ruled the known world in its time, along, uh, you know, uh, followed by Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. Prior to that, there was Egypt and such. I mean, there were world-governing powers that all play a, a pivot, uh, a, an important role in uh, in the unfolding um, scheme of mankind, but also uh, find reference here in the end. Now, in Revelation, we see wrap. Uh, we see being wrapped up everything that starts in the book of Genesis. And I think there's a very deliberate, uh, in the purposes and plans of God, a very deliberate um, um, displaying of that. In the beginning, in Babel, in Babylon, we have, in Babel, before Babylon is ultimately formed, but in, at the Tower of Babel, what do we have? Well, we have the people of the world gathering together as one, trying to build a tower that reaches into the heavens so that they might sit among the gods. Um, and we see here now what really amounts to the first world empire, and the world, of course, not being the seven continents and all that. Everybody was essentially situated in Mesopotamia at that time. But everybody at that time, essentially at that point now, is gathering together with the intention of building this tower into the heavens that they might sit among the gods. Well, what in fact is Babylon at the end, but uh, sort of symbolic of the commerce, the economy, the spiritual uh, elements, and all of these things wrapped up in the world, all kind of uh, reaching their culmination in this sort of spirit of Babylon, this same Babylon kind of spirit taking place, albeit very likely in the form of a revived Roman Empire. Now, there's a lot there, by the way. I just sort of jumped to that. But there's an entire study of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9. Um, there is uh, mention of the, uh, the ten toes, the ten horns, uh, the crowns, all these different elements. Revelation 13 comes into this. Uh, that is a, a very big subject that would take us kind of outside of this discussion. So I want to stay here. But when I make that leap, it's not just sort of a leap out of nowhere. It's connected to a lot of... Uh, information contained in these, uh, again, in these symbols and such, which are intended to um, help us understand what's going on. Let me take a moment just on that, because this helps make my point. In Revelation 13, we see uh, this crazy beast with multiple heads and uh, horns and crowns and all this kind of thing, faces, and the symbolism there seems really bizarre and strange, and the tendency, therefore, is to just try and figure out what it might speak of. But you don't have to try and figure out what it might speak of, because that very same imagery appears in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, so I guess I don't really want to leave you hanging with all those references. I'll kind of put it together at least a little bit. But in Daniel chapter 7, that same imagery appears. We've got this multi-faced, uh, multi-headed, multi-faceted uh, uh, being uh, this beast, that Daniel, when he sees this vision, he asks the angel, well, what does it mean? About halfway through chapter 7, he asks, well, what does this mean? I'm troubled by this. Help me understand it. And he's given understanding of it. 
and he's told, well, these represent kingdoms, these represent kings and such. But one day, one uh, horn is going to rise up out of these other horns and is going to take down three of them and rule them. And if we see, when we combine Revelation 13 with Daniel 7, we see that what we have here in Daniel is a, fore, is a foretelling of what is going to happen. And John is 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 uh is reiterating that foretelling about an event that is going to be taking place in the last days now uh, a very important element in the book of daniel is that at the end of the book of daniel he's told to seal up the prophecy until the last days well uh uh 70 a.d was not the last days uh we're in the last days now i mean you could argue that the last days began with peter's sermon in acts chapter 2 but clearly what's in view here is a global empire that brings the, that is under the auspices of these leaders and that kind of thing. Well, that hasn't happened. And so we don't, we don't have that fulfilled. But as far as the imagery goes, we recognize that there is a consistency of imagery in the scripture that helps us understand what's in view. We don't have to guess what these things are. We have a pretty good, if not a, a, a solid understanding of what is in view. Another example of this I like to bring up is uh, Revelation 12. You've got this vision of the woman with the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, that has been variously misunderstood, and sometimes at great cost, uh, uh, the misunderstanding of this has, has created terrible peril over the years. Um, it's actually... Uh, for example, the Roman Catholic Church interprets the woman as being indicative of the church and the, the man-child that is born to her. This is Christ of the church and everything. Well, that's not what that symbol is. How can you say that? How do you know what that is? That's a crazy image. How would you possibly know what that is? Because once again, the Bible tells us what it is. In, in Genesis chapter 37, again, what is wrapped up in Revelation is something that started in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has a dream of a woman with the sun, moon, and stars. And his own father, Jacob, who is the progenitor of Israel, recognizes that what Joseph is seeing here, in some sense, is a vision of both uh, Joseph's father and mother, Jacob and his wife, and of course then they're uh, Joseph's brothers. And, so, and, and in the vision, all of these sun, moon, and stars bow down to, to Joseph's star. And Jacob says, are your mother and I and your brothers all going to bow down to you, even your mother and I? He understands that this is what's in view. Who's in view in the sun, moon, and stars? Israel. Now plug that into Revelation 12. What do you have? You have Israel giving birth to Messiah. Israel is chased by the dragon off into the wilderness while the man-child, Christ, is swept up into heaven. What do you see there? But you see the resurrection of Christ. You see that Israel being persecuted in the last days under Antichrist. It suddenly fits perfectly. Suddenly now the understanding is not so complicated because we understand what the images mean. And so, but if we spiritualize everything or allegorize or assume that we can't really know what's in view there, then we are subject to lots of well, subjective interpretations. I would say that those who take the scripture at face value will have a much better place to work from in interpreting the scripture than one who would generally tend toward allegory and symbolism um, and, and sort of an underlying sense that we don't know for sure what's being said when it comes to under, trying to understand these passages. So um, let me bring up one other... Um, oh, and, and so in regard to Revelation 17, if, if it were Jerusalem in view in Revelation 17, 
then when Revelation 18 comes around and Babylon is destroyed, who in that view is destroyed? Jerusalem. And hence, he would hold the view that in 70 AD this was fulfilled. But there's no actual reason to think that that is Jerusalem. There does make a lot more sense to say that there is in some sense connection with Babylon of old and even Babel in the beginning. Uh, and of course, when we tie it together with the rest of the passages related to it, we realize that there is in fact a revived Roman Empire that, that is that upon which uh, this harlot ultimately is connected. And so, again, it's there is symbolism that's used, but the symbolism has an anchor in previous descriptions that help us understand what's in view. It doesn't have to be a mystery, per se. It actually can be understood with a relatively good degree of certainty. Um, one other thing I'll, I'll bring up here before this gets too terribly long in regard to the difference between a preterist and a futurist view, uh, and that is on the subject of Israel itself. I mentioned Israel in regard to the woman and uh, the sun, moon, and stars and all of this. Well, the subject of Israel is another important uh, distinction between a preterist and um, uh, the preterist view and the futurist view. In the preterist view, the covenant that God made with Israel ended in 70 AD. And so therefore, beyond the destruction of Jerusalem and the ending of that covenant, what follows then would relate purely to the church. Now, it doesn't automatically lead to this, but it's not hard to see how it did underlie some of the replacement theology and the horrors that have taken place as a result of it. And I would connect this with the idea of misinterpreting the, the vision of the woman with the sun, moon, and stars in Revelation 12, and those who would interpret that as representing the church. Um, the idea of replacement theology is not just sort of a, uh, a theological discussion of sorts. It has real-world ramifications. As a matter of fact, the Holocaust, in large part in the church's lack of participation in protecting Israel and standing with Israel through that, uh, and as a matter of fact, in many quarters, uh, even standing against Israel, as those who crucify the Messiah, the covenant that God had with them was... Uh, came to an end when he destroyed Jerusalem and everything. And now the church has replaced Israel as the inheritor of the promises. Israel is no longer part of God's prophetic plan. We can see the problems that that brings. Again, the Holocaust was no uh, small, small result of that, and very directly so. I don't say that casually or flippantly. I say that because there's a very direct connection between these ideas. That doesn't mean that every preterist would reject Israel and want to see the Holocaust. What I'm saying is that ideas have consequences, and theologies have consequences as well. Um, but, uh, getting back to the preterist view of Israel, the covenant ending in 70 AD, and therefore now uh, the church is ultimately in view, there's a point at which there, there's, there's a correct aspect to that, but only for a time. For the time being, we are living in a period of time known as the Age of Grace or the Church Age, where God is not working through Israel. However, there is a problem with the perspective that God has done with Israel, because there are a lot of passages that talk about God working in Israel in the last days. Well, if you are prone to allegorizing the text or, or seeing it as symbolic or metaphorical or just not reading it at a face value uh, from a face value perspective, then when you come across passages that deal with Israel in the last days, or the millennium in the last days, you're going to interpret those through a very different lens. Uh, for example, the millennium is a great example of this. 
the amillennialist, which is not necessarily uh, an amillennialist, does not have to be a preterist, and a preterist can be a different person than an amillennialist, although the two do often cross, and people are oftentimes both. But you can be one and not the other in some respects. But both the amillennialist and the preterist would view the millennial kingdom not as a literal thousand years, but as being symbolic of a long period of time. The amillennialist and the preterist would see the age in which we're living right now as being the millennium. We're living in a day between Christ's first coming and second coming um, as being the period known as the millennium, a time when we're under the new covenant, and therefore uh, the church is, um, you know, victorious and making its way through the ages and, and that kind of thing. And so there is no expectation in those perspectives for a literal thousand-year millennium. Now, I guess it's possible for a partial preterist to adopt the idea of a literal thousand years because it does say this after chapter 19, verse 11 of the book of Revelation, where a partial preterist would now begin to look at some of that and potentially all of that after 1911, uh, Revelation 19:11, as being literal, whereas the rest of it were allegorical. A full preterist would not see this as literal, and an amillennialist, as it turns out, would also say no literal thousand years, hence the amillennial. Uh, mille, meaning a thousand, a, it being the negative, no literal thousand years. And amillennialist does believe in a millennium, just not a literal thousand-year millennium. They believe that we're in the millennium now. Um, and one day, the millennium will end when Christ returns and judges the living and the dead. And so, again, there's nuances to some of these things. And like a lot of different perspectives, um, there are different particular views held by individuals within these different uh, camps of, 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 of eschatology and stuff. But a futurist would look at the passage that has that have to do with Israel in the last days and say, no, this is not symbolic language of the church, and this is not somehow now appropriated by the church, but rather instead, this must mean that God is instead going to use Israel in the last days, that there will be a literal thousand-year reign, that there will even be a temple in the millennium, as seems to be described by Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 48. And so a futurist and one who takes the scripture at face value uh, and lets the text simply say what it says and believes it for that, and again, not, not forsaking the possibility of symbolism, but just not taking that approach as the primary interpretation. When we look at the, the texts for what they say, again, Ezekiel 40 through 40, 48, um, uh, um, Revelation chapter 13, where it speaks about uh, an antichrist, a false prophet, a mark, uh, an um, abomination of desolation uh, standing in the holy place that will literally come to life and there will be a demand for mankind to worship it and to take a mark of allegiance uh, without which you cannot buy or sell on your right hand or forehead. Uh, all of these things that are spoken of, the futurist does not allegorize those and find a way to make it connect with uh, uh, Israel in 70 AD and the temple and such, but rather we say because these things didn't happen as described, we believe it's still yet coming. Again, a preterist would look at those descriptions and say, well, that happened in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian marched upon Jerusalem and sacked the city and destroyed the temple. Uh, the Roman standards entering into the temple are the abomination of desolation. Well, that's a bit of a stretch because there was no image standing up that the whole world had to worship and take a mark on your right hand or forehead without which you can't buy or sell. 
uh, certainly the standard of the Roman Empire didn't come to life at the uh, at the uh, at the power of the false prophet, you know, empowering it. Um, you know, the Antichrist didn't receive a mortal wound and that kind of thing, and then seemingly rise from the dead. All of these events that that are that are given as description of that event in the last days, those things didn't happen. And so, if we say that it, that this is describing uh, the temple in 70 AD in Jerusalem, we're having to now redefine what those images or what those descriptions are supposed to imply. I think it's better just to take it at face value because that is what the scripture says. And it's not hard to see how these things all fit together when you take it plainly. Uh, when Paul, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, talks about uh, the man of sin, the son of perdition, walking into the temple of God, declaring himself to be God, and, and, and demanding to be worshipped above all that is called God, that didn't happen in 70 AD. So that's a pretty plain description of somebody coming in and performing a certain number of activities, activities that are further described in Revelation 13. Why not just take it at face value? I mean, why, why would there be a hang-up with the idea of simply reading that text like we would read any other text describing events taking place in Scripture? Uh, any of the kings that fought their battles in that, in the Old Testament, in the books of you know, Kings and Samuel and Chronicles and all these different descriptions of events and people involved in them and those kinds of things, we don't take them figuratively. We take them literally. Why? We, this doesn't read any differently, really. It just happens to be situated within a book that is prophetic and eschatological in nature, and there is an assumption made that it needs to therefore be interpreted in a certain way. Well, the, the text is pretty straightforward. Why would you take it differently? And so my my uh, position and my encouragement is that we do take it that way. And there are lots of other examples of this within this realm of eschatology that would be different in regard to the perspectives of a futurist and, and you know, uh, a preterist and that kind of thing. Now, again, I'm not saying that a preterist isn't a believer or something like that, but their eschatology would be very, very different from a futurist and from one who just simply reads the text and takes it as it says uh, and builds its es builds our eschatology based upon that information that is given. Um, so, kind of bringing this in for a landing. Um, Things like Israel and Israelology, understanding Israel and its place, both in the past but also in the future, um, um, the implications of that, uh, the the you know the ease with which we can understand the Scripture if we just take it that way and understand it that way, uh, helps us unravel what is often seen as a mystery when it comes to last things. Um, it helps us understand how we read places like Matthew 24. Uh, it helps us understand what you know how to understand books like the book of Daniel. Again, many people don't realize that Daniel gets the same information in a different uh, uh, idiom and symbolism in chapter seven, but it's the same information that God gives Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two. Uh, and that same symbolism in chapter seven, once again, as we mentioned earlier, appears in Revelation thirteen, helping us tie these things together and understand them. Um, so, all of that being said, and, and that was, again, sort of a scenic route to answering a question that I guess I didn't actually answer for Randall. I know we're looking for maybe a full study just more on the idea of the dating of the book of, uh, gospel, of, uh, book of Revelation by John. But I, I think I would, again, leave that 
to your personal study by just simply doing the research on that. Uh, look up the definition and explanation of the preterist view from a preterist. Uh, in some ways, it's not fair for me to go too far on that because I'm not a preterist and I would never want to be accused of misrepresenting someone's system of eschatology. And so take it from the horse's mouth, somebody who would actually be a preterist. Um, and likewise, do some research on the futurist view. And, and after having done that, consider... Uh, you know, the approach to understanding scripture from both of those perspectives and decide for yourself, which is the, uh, you know, which is the more consistent way to go through and understand uh, the scriptures and to develop your own, you know, a, a proper hermeneutic, not your own hermeneutic, but to embrace the hermeneutic that best fits how we should approach the scripture uh, based on these things. So that being said, hopefully that does serve to answer some questions and maybe even give sort of a um, an overview of, of how different our perspectives on eschatology can be based on how we approach interpreting these portions of Scripture. I know reasons are given why prophetic, apocalyptic, eschatological literature in Scripture um, is seen by some as, or is taken as, or uh, is seen as literature that should be interpreted differently than the rest of the Bible. But I would argue that that lends itself to an inconsistency that actually makes it harder for you to understand what the Bible is saying rather than easier. And so, uh, but that that's my perspective. And so I just, there you go. So for what it's worth, my, my hope is that it's somewhat helpful uh, and instructive. If you have any thoughts or questions on any of that, hopefully it made sense. Um, but uh, feel free to share them in the comments section on our YouTube channel. Or if you want to email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com, you can do that as well. Uh, and I'm always glad to, to take your questions and your comments and all those kinds of things. So thanks for that. And thanks, as always, for watching and listening. Uh, I really do consider it a blessing that, uh, that uh, you allow me this space in your life to, uh, to open the Word together and to discuss these things. And so thanks for watching and listening. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to become more and more students of the Word. And we pray that our perspective, our approach to understanding these things would grow and become more and more consistent all the time, that we would seek for it, uh, for our study of the Word of God to um, to make sense, that we would study it and not just parts of it, that we would not read into the text things that may not be there or bring apparatus to the text that doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily required by the text, but rather instead to read your Word as you wrote it to us and to understand it as you would have us understand it. Help us to be students even of that pursuit. And so thank you for the time that you give us to consider these things. And we do pray that our hearts would burn within us as we study the word, that our understanding would deepen, our ability to piece things together and build a comprehensive theology and eschatology and all these things, Father. Just grow and, and increase our understanding of your word for your glory's sake and for the sake of our growth in our walk with Christ. And even, um, you know, because these things help bolster unity in the body and they uh, help us to grow together and to develop fellowship around uh, more than just the basics of the Christian faith. Uh, and especially in days in which we live, where we're getting closer and closer to the, the coming of Christ, help us to be students of your word as we anticipate his coming for us, uh, both in the establishing of his kingdom, but also in his coming for his bride. We thank you, Lord, again and praise you. We bless you and ask all this in Jesus' name.